this is the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley and I'm your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. It's winter and I'm back in Alaska and temps are dipping well below the freezing line. It's been snowing for days now, which gets me thinking about uh, recreating in the snowy mountains. Um, It's about time to pull out my snowboard boots and dust off my board. My guest on this episode of The Sharp End pulled out his snowshoes and ice tools. And his story takes place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, or the UP. And you don't really think of Michigan as a major ice climbing destination, at least I don't. But hundreds of people actually travel long distances from all over the Midwest to climb on the cliffs above Lake Superior. Uh, my guest does that. He, my guest, Jason Eicholtz, um, he lives in Indiana, and he drives more than seven hours to climb ice in the UP. Welcome to the show, Jason, and why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jason Eicholtz. I have been an ice climber since 2008, got started in the UP of Michigan, uh, currently employed in the IT field for a day-to-day job. So you, you, left, you left work on Friday afternoon. And you drove seven hours north, and then start from there. What happened? What happened after that? Okay, so Friday afternoon, we all took off on Friday to go up uh, to the UP, and we uh, I think we left around one o'clock in the afternoon that day, and it's about seven and a half hours up there. So other than a, a couple short breaks on the drive, we got to the trailhead around nine o'clock at night, and a little backstory. Most of the people in the climbing community in my city, in northern Indiana, we're known as binge climbers. And we're known as that way because there's nothing close to us at all to climb. Uh, The Red River Gorge is a five and a half hour drive on a good day. Uh, Seneca Rocks is a seven and a half hour drive. Jackson uh, Falls is a six hour drive. So everything is a very long ways away for us to get any kind of outdoor climbing. So the UP being seven and a half hours away, we're, we're accustomed to having to drive long distances to go do anything fun. But we try to cram in as much as we can, hence the, the binge climbing attribute there, um, when we go do these trips because we have to come back to our day jobs uh, after a long weekend's over. So we took off on Friday to, to drive up there. And the idea was is to try to get a nighttime climb of Dairyland, which is one of the larger climbs in the UP. Uh, get a little bit of, of shut-eye before Saturday morning, and then Saturday morning head out to a, the biggest climb up there called HMR. So we got to the trailhead for for this climb, and it was negative 14 Fahrenheit when we got out of the truck that night. Everything's frozen, and uh, yeah, it was it was cold, and it was a lot of snow up there as well. I think some of the areas had about three feet of snow on the ground. So it was a snowshoe event for... Uh, two of us and the our third climber Travis. Uh, he was on uh, cross country. Well, sorry, not cross country. He was on uh, 
uh, alpine touring skis. So he was skiing out there. Colleen and I were on snowshoes to get out there. And it was about an hour and a half trek through the woods from the trailhead to get back to the beginning of where Dairyland was. And Dairyland, um, looking out from Dairyland, you're looking almost directly north over Lake Superior. So besides the the negative 14 air temp, we also had a constant breeze coming off the lake. So it was very, very chilly up there. I don't I have no idea what the wind speed was, but it was definitely not someplace you wanted to stand still for very long. So we get up there. Um, it's probably 1030 now, um, maybe 11 o'clock since we got out from the truck up to yeah. the actual climb. PM, correct. So we're, with, we're on headlamps and we start to rig uh, ropes because almost everything up there is a rappel off the edge and then a climb back up. There's very little unless you can have access to the lake to actually either lead climb it or climb from the bottom. So we ended up uh, setting up anchors and building our anchor system. And during that time, it was so frigid up there for us temperature that we had to get up and we would actually jog down the trail a little bit to get our temperature back up. And we probably took breaks during our anchor building maybe three or four different times to be uh, to get up and actually run and try to get uh, warmth back into our fingertips and into our toes because it was very, very cold up there. But we start to climb and uh, Travis went down the edge first and got to the point over the edge where you could see nothing or hear nothing over it. It was completely black. There's... This is one of the parts of the country as well that has very little light pollution because there's just nothing up there. No cell phone service, no uh, access to really anybody out in, in this location. When you're out there, you're essentially on your own unless you have a satellite transponder, which I actually did have one of those with me, um, or another form of communication like maybe a ham radio or a sat phone. So he's over the edge and... I think it wigs him out a little bit, and he decides that he does not want to try to... So basically what happens in this next section is that they decide that it's just... The conditions are just too cold to climb it. You know, two out of the four do try and climb it, but um, they, they eventually decide that they just are going to kind of take down this climb, pack up, and then head back to the truck for um, another climb. We pack up our stuff and head back to the truck, and we get to the truck right around 4.30 in the morning. Um... So we pack up everything and head over to the next trailhead, uh, which is about a half an hour drive away. And it's actually not that far in the summertime when there's no snow on the ground, but we're on unplowed forest roads, so we can't really drive very fast on these roads. So we're probably, I want to say maybe three miles away from the next trailhead, but it took a half an hour to get over there just having to navigate all this stuff. So we get over to the other trailhead, and it's 5 5 a.m. We're like, we're not going to try to set up a tent and actually get those stuff uh, set up tonight since we're going to only be sleeping for a few hours anyway. So we just decided to crash in the truck. So we pulled out our sleeping bags, curled up in those, and we're in a small pickup truck. We're in a Toyota Tacoma. So it's not the most comfortable sleeping conditions to have. For three people. For three people, (laughs) plus all of our gear. It's like I'm in the back seat and all the gear is piled up on the the right side of me. So I I guess I have a little bit more cushion than the people in the front do because I have something to lay against, but it was still very, very small. So we have a, a pretty bad night's sleep. Slept about four hours. Wake up around 9.30 in the morning. And at that time, one of our other climbing friends from, uh, from northern Indiana shows up. Uh, his name is Derek. And he's uh, been sleeping there for a couple hours that night as well. So we wander over to his pickup truck. And he has a cap on the back of his truck that's raised up quite high. And he has a little propane furnace back there. 
and he's making breakfast. So I think it had warmed up. Must be nice. Yeah, it had warmed up a little bit too. It's negative 11 out now uh, and the sun's out. So it actually doesn't feel too bad. But the back of his truck is probably about 35 degrees. So it was quite toasty in there. We're in the back of his truck with just base layers and, and our mid layers on. We don't even have our jackets on at this point. Uh, just eating eating breakfast with them, talking about what happened last night. But we had such a slow start. I'm not sure if it was a motivational thing or it's a lack of energy thing, but all of us were moving pretty slow. And we didn't actually leave uh, the truck that day until about noon. And it's a long hike out to HMR. Again, we're on snowshoes, Travis being on skis. And it's probably three and a half hours um, of snowshoeing to get back to the, the top of uh, the cliff where HMR is at. So we get back there, and I wanted to to camp that night at HMR since it was such a long hike away. But unfortunately, I was one voice out of four, and I was the only one who wanted to do that. Everybody else was like, no, let's, let's travel light. Let's get back there. Let's get back out uh, today and just have a, a good time climbing and not have to haul this extra stuff out there because you know winter mountaineering tents are not light. White gas stoves are not light. So there's a lot of extra weight that we'd be carrying out there amongst our group if we were to actually try to camp out there. Yeah. So unfortunately, I was voted down. Um, So we head out and we have some snacks with us. I have most of a one liter bottle of Nalgene with me. And that's about it. No way to to make any extra warmth. No sleeping bags. No uh, warmth to be had any other way other than our own body heat to generate it. Uh, and if anybody has been experienced in extremely cold weather before, it's very taxing in, uh, on your body, as well as the fact that your calorie intake has to be so much higher because your body is burning food just to make heat. Mm-hmm. And none of us really thought about that. Uh, I included, I wanted to bring stuff, but I still didn't bring in near enough food for myself. So that was definitely a lesson learned out of this event was um, whatever you think you're going to eat, bring twice as much, maybe three times as much for an event like this if you have no other way to warm yourself because your body has to have that food for fuel. So we get out to the, the cliff top of this and we start to build our anchors there. And this time we have a, several trees to choose from. So it's a little easier to build our anchor system to, to wrap off the edge. HMR is a big climb. I think all the way down to the lakeshore, it's almost 200 feet. Um, so we, we end up building our anchors and wrap off of that. Derek's the first one over on this. And he makes it back up, and he had a good time with it. He uh, he had what most ice climbers experience, which is called the screaming barfies, because his hands hurt so bad getting back up when the warm blood flowed back into those cold fingers. So he's in pain for a little bit while Travis is getting his stuff set up to go over. Since Travis didn't go the night before on his climb, really, he only went down a, a little bit and then came back up. Uh, we decided to let him go down next to try to get a climb in before it got dark. So he goes down. Comes back up in the daylight and comes back up halfway through the daylight. And the rest of the half of his climb was was almost black again up there. It's uh, maybe 5.30 at night on the February. So it's getting dark up there pretty quick. And uh, the next person to go over would have been Colleen. But at this point, standing around waiting for two other climbers, she's really cold. And she's not excited about doing this again in the dark. She was really hoping to get out there earlier. And things just didn't pan out that we'd have that kind of time to get somebody out there or try to get us all out there and to get um, anchors built and back up for all of us to actually climb in the daylight. So her and I decided to pack up our gear and head back to camp or head back to the trucks. And 
Uh, Derek being up there for only one night so far, he's still pretty fresh and pretty active. He's also in phenomenal shape. He's a triathlete when he's not ice climbing. So we're not worried about him catching up to us. And then Travis is on skis. So he's already faster than two of us on snowshoes. So they stay to tear down the anchors and to carry the ropes back while her and I head back. And we're, we're in headlamps now on this. So we're hiking for just about two hours, two and a half hours, I think, until Travis and Derek catch up to us. Well, did, during, did you guys did you guys split the radios up? Because you you mentioned earlier that you that you had some radios. So did you you and Colleen take a radio and then leave the other radio with the other two guys? Sadly, no. Um, I don't think they would have worked for the distance that we had between us. Uh, they're just little tiny, you know, blister pack radios you'd buy all over at Walmart. So they're nothing fancy at all. Um, but no, we didn't even think about that. Um, you don't think very clearly either when you're hungry, you're thirsty, and you're tired, especially in those kind of uh, weather conditions. So the thought to actually split the radios up never came across to either any of us in this group. Mm-hmm. Well, ne- next time. <laughs> next time, yes. <laughs> and actually, we're just talking about going back up here soon. So um, yeah, there will be a next time here pretty soon, I think. <laughs> but uh, either way, though, we're we're about two, two to two and a half hours on the trail when when Travis and Derek catch up to us. Well, Travis and Derek are out of water uh, for what they've consumed on the trip, what they brought with them. Uh, and Colleen and I are both out of water as well. The The water that I had brought, I brought almost a one liter analogy of, of water with me. And I drank about, I'd say, two-thirds of the, maybe three-fourths of that analogy while I was out that day. The rest of it actually froze in my pack. And I'm not used to actually having sloshing water moving around in a pack actually freeze, but it was so cold uh, that the water actually froze solid while it was being jostled around in my backpack. So that was disappointing because, again, I had no way to melt it other than just putting it in my, my jacket and hoping that my body temperature would eventually melt it. So we don't have any water and we don't have that many snacks. The, the worst thing you can possibly do is eat snow. But we are so thirsty at this point and we know that the truck's not very far away. So we do. We eat some snow on, on the trip. and. I think all of us had been munching on snow on occasion. But when Travis and Derek catch up with us, they're all excited that they did one of the biggest climbs in the UP. Um, the only par- only members of our climbing group in our local area that have ever gone up there to do this climb. So uh, out comes the flask with some whiskey to celebrate for this. And um, Travis is, you know, he's he's one of the younger guys in our group. So he still is invincible in his mind. And so he takes several shots of whiskey um, that night when we're out there on the trail. And for anybody on the, that's listening to this podcast, one of the reasons that you always saw the cartoon for the St. Bernard's with whiskey on it was it actually does make you feel warm. And it makes you feel warm because your capillaries dilate. So all that warm blood that's in your core that your body's already shut off to your extremities because it's trying to keep the core warm, now it rushes to all your extremities. So that not only puts all your capillaries flush, so they're more exposed to that cold air so they can uh, lose the heat quicker, but it also brings all that cold blood that's in your extremities back to your core. So your temperature drops really fast. Um, But you also don't feel it until it's probably too late because you feel warm. Your capillaries are flush, everything feels hot, which I think is one of the reasons too why so many people that have hypothermic episodes out in the wild, they'll find them naked. And it's because they, they believe they're so hot so 
not having enough water or food and then having alcohol mixed into that too was not a good combination because everybody felt warm now. So we start hiking back and I'd say maybe 15 minutes of hiking. Uh, Travis was like, I need to take a break. I need to sit down. I'm just too tired. So we try to talk him to keep moving and to get up and he gets up and starts walking a little bit. Well, being one of the younger guys in the group, he's also a jokester, which makes him really fun to hang out with. But we're all getting a little little tired and a little wore out on this trip. And Colleen believes that Travis is probably just being Travis and just uh, goofing off for the sake of goofing off. So she's like, I'm, I'm too cold to be standing around here. We, we're actually on the known part of the trail now on the forest road. So she's like, I'm just walking back. You guys can all hang out here and sit down and take a break if you want to, but I need to go back to the truck so I can be warm. So she takes off down the trail. And we're not worried about losing her because we're on the actual forest road now. We're no longer in the forest, but we still have about a mile, 0.7, I think, to, to walk. So we, we, we get Travis back up and motivated. He starts to move again. And it's not very long, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, he falls face over in the snow. And... So we we go back over to him. I was like, dude, we can't we can't rest here. We have to keep moving. And he's like, I just want to sleep. And all of a sudden, he was unconscious. And there was nothing we could do to wake him up. Uh, he's got a full beard. Derek was grabbing his beard and shaking his head back and forth, like, Come on, Travis, you got to get up. You can't just you can't do this. And he, unconscious, but but breathing. Yes, unconscious but breathing. And he was he was completely out. Um. Just like he said, he wanted to take a nap, but he was unresponsive trying to get us trying to get him to get moving again. So at this point, you know, we we realize it's pretty serious that that there's something wrong with Travis. And we can't wake him up. So he is breathing, which is a good thing. He's not he's not dying, but he is definitely to a point where I think his temperature probably dropped so much that, that his brain just shut down. So my, I hope most of your viewers have probably heard of Freedom of the Hills, one of the most excellent books for mountaineering. And there's a good section in there. It talks about how to move move injured climbers. So they have like the double rope carry in there. They have, um, you know, the, obviously they like the piggyback method. There's a couple other methods in there on how to carry somebody who who can't help themselves. But look at the pictures closely. I think every picture of the injured person, they're looking around and they're happy. They just can't walk. A 165-pound man who is a limp noodle because he is unconscious is very difficult to move in deep snow. Especially when you both are tired and it's late and you're cold and, yeah, and you're thirsty and you're hungry. Yeah, and we all have at least 40-pound packs each because we have all the climbing gear, the rope gear. Um, I'm a semi-professional photographer, so I have uh, photography equipment with me as well because we wanted to capture this. So there's a lot of gear that we're hauling. Uh, and we're in, you know, two to three feet of snow. So we have to use snowshoes to move through this stuff. And trying to move a 165 pound man is next to impossible when he can't support his own body weight at all. So we spent, I don't know, a good 10 minutes, 15 minutes trying to figure out a way to, to lash him to his own skis to see if we could do like a rope drag with him. But even lash him to his skis, he was just, he was so, um, wiggly, I guess is the best way to say it, that we just couldn't move him in the snow. He would just dig in and fall back off a ski or the ski would turn sideways on us. It was, it was too difficult to move him as he was. So at that point, um, 
I told I told Derek like, hey, I'll I'll me grab his pack and take both the packs back to the truck because we're only at this point I think we're probably a mile away from the truck now, which doesn't seem very far. But I was like, let me let me grab both the packs. I'll take both the packs back, drop them, and then I'll come back and I'll help you move them. You know, we won't have any extra weight then to move. So I'm going to essentially leave about ninety pounds of weight back at the truck. So I take off um, while Travis or sorry, while Derek stays with Travis to make sure that he's still breathing and everything's good with him there. And I get about a half an hour down the trail, and I can't see any lights at all from where Colleen may have made it back to the truck. And I look behind me, and I can't see any indication at all of Derek and Travis back there. So I yell to see if I can hear anybody respond to me, and nobody says anything back. It's just dead silence up there. And I'm to the point where I am probably going to need rescuing as well if I continue to try to carry 90 pounds of stuff back with me. So I end up dropping Travis's pack, and I have a very old spot messenger that I carry with me. Um, so it's a satellite-based transponder to alert emergency services if you need help. And I, I really debated upon this for a long time if I was going to push that button. As I stood there in that silence in the cold and you know, not moving now, I can feel myself getting very, very cold. And I'm thinking there's no way him laying face down in the snow like he was if I'm this cold and I'm still alert, that he's going to survive if I don't. So I ended up pushing the button on that and watched the lights go on it and saw that it made its first transmission. And this is one thing that I would say is that it was useful and it helped in this situation, but I think the next time I go out on serious events like this, I will either buy the new generation of this device or a different service because not having the ability to tell the rescuers what's wrong is very detrimental to actually help having them rally what is needed to come and rescue you. Yeah, they don't know what to bring. Exactly. Yeah, I have a first-generation spot messenger. So this device just says someone's in trouble and it's life-threatening. It doesn't say what actually is wrong with them. Fortunately, the rescue crews in the area knew that if you're hitting this button at 2 in the morning and this is the location that you're at, you're probably some ice climbers who weren't well prepared for this and you're probably in need of warmth as the biggest sign because you're going to go hypothermic. So I think in the situation and the context that we were in, it, it was probably sufficient, but it doesn't give the person using it a warm, fuzzy feeling because uh, you don't you can't communicate that. So you're just re- hoping that whoever gets the message knows that it's an actual serious emergency and what to bring. So with that said, I hit the button and I start making it way back to the truck um, I had left Travis's pack in the on the ground there, um, mainly because I know in my pack I have the warm gear that I need if I should need to put extra warm layers on. I don't know what Travis is carrying. And Travis, obviously, he's not with his bag anymore, so he doesn't need what's in there right now. Um, that can get picked up on the way back. So I eventually make it back to the truck, about another half an hour of walking. And I put the spot messenger on the hood of the truck so because it needs to have a clear view to the sky. And... Um, I pop into the back of the pickup truck and and ask Colleen uh, if she's doing okay. And she is. She's cold. But she's warming up next to the Derek's little heater in the back of the truck again. And then fortune had it that another one of our climbing friends, Andrew, had pulled up in his sprinter van that he had um, maybe five minutes before I got back to the trailhead. And he came up to spend the, the entire week up there at, at ice climbing and at ice fest. So I run over to his van. And I knock on his door, and he pops out. He's like, hey, Jason, how's it going? He's all happy to see me. I was like, Andrew, 
Travis is unconscious in the snow, probably hypothermic, and he's going to die. And Andrew's like, okay, I'll grab my stuff. And Andrew um, was a, a huge blessing here because, one, he was fresh. He just drove up there and arrived. So he's still warm. He's not. He's well-rested. He's probably well-hydrated as well, being on the road. He also happens to be a wilderness first responder. So uh, that helped out a lot because he knew what needed to be done to keep Travis warm and alive out there. So he grabs a ground pad, uh, a huge sleeping bag, a, um, a water bottle, and a stove and and rushes out to where Travis is at down the trail. So he gets out there to where Travis is at. Um, Derek's on his way back now. So Derek, because Derek's been out there the whole time too, and he's he's probably extremely cold at this point too and not moving, just kind of hanging out with Travis, make sure Travis is alive. And Andrew essentially spends the next three hours on the ground with Travis keeping them warm, heating up the water in the water bottle, putting a new fresh water bottle in there with them. Um, for anybody who's gone through like any of the wilderness uh, first aid or wilderness EMT or first responder classes, what Andrew ended up making was called a... Um, uh, uh, Hypo-wrap. He called it a, a, something a burrito. I remember seeing it actually in the literature for the, the wilderness first aid class. Um, a hypothermic burrito, I think is what it was. But it's essentially um, a ground pad, a plastic tarp, and a sleeping bag. And it's, it's folded around the person to keep them dry and to keep them warm and to keep all the, the wind off them as well. So, yeah, it, and it worked really well. Um, but the, I think the most disappointing part was we never knew what was happening with the satellite beacon that I had used on the spot messenger. Well, when Derek gets back, and we're sitting around probably for 20 or 30 minutes wondering, you know, when when the park rangers are going to get there or whoever's going to get there with that response to the, the spot messenger, we eventually decide that we should drive down the road, uh, get back on the main road and find somebody to call an ambulance because we don't have any cell phone service back here. There's, there's no way to communicate with anybody. So we start the truck up and we head down, we find a little gas station on one of the highways and, and it's you and Colleen or is it you and does, are you, is everybody with you at that point? It's, it's Colleen, Derek and I, uh, the three of okay. us, uh, Andrew and Travis are still on the trail right now, keeping each other warm. But we find a little gas station. Um, this is probably around 11, 1130 now at night. And the people who own the gas station live at the gas station too. Like their house is above the, above the gas station service uh, area. So Derek's beating on the windows uh, and eventually wakes somebody up there to use their phone to call 911. So we call the ambulance out, tell them what's going on. Tell them that they need a snowmobile to be out there to, to pick up Travis. And we tell them where we're at on the trail, what trail system we're on, and the, they know where it's at. So they go, okay, we'll, we'll be out there shortly. So we head back to the, to the trailhead to wait for them. And we're in the back next to a little propane heater staying warm. And we see the flashing lights of the ambulance come up the road. And they went right past us. And we can't call them because we have no cell phone service. Like this is so frustrating that we saw them just drive right by and not stop. So I get all my gear back on. I have my my boots off, trying to warm my feet up because they are numb at this point. So I get my boots back on. I get all suited up to go back out of the truck again. And when I see the flashing lights come back down the road, I jump out in front of the ambulance and wave it down to make sure that they stop where we're at. So after a little dialogue with the with the ambulance driver, uh, he tells us that um, well. We don't know if they need a, a snowmobile to get back there. We can't get back there where he's at. 
And I was like, I know they need a snowmobile. We told you that on the phone. So somewhere there was a communication loss calling 911 dispatch versus actually having an ambulance come out. So I'm standing next to the ambulance while they call on the radio back to dispatch. And they get a hold of the park service and they get patched through to them. And the park service tells them that they got a, a message from a satellite transponder earlier. So they're aware of the situation and they've been working on getting snowmobiles out there. So fortunately, this kind of plays into the timeline. Um, fortunately, they were already rallying what needed to happen to rescue Travis um, before the ambulance even came out, before we made that 911 call. Um, but I hit that satellite button, I think around 10 o'clock at night, 10.30, somewhere in between that time frame. And the park service did not show up until 1.30. So it took three hours for the park service to get there um, with snowmobiles to be able to gather Travis back up. Which is one of the reasons why I say that having having Andrew there being fresh, having the, the, the skills and the knowledge to go warm Travis up and um, just being alert and, and rested himself, if that wasn't the case, we don't know if Travis would have survived. Cause so, so how many hours was Travis laying in the snow since when he first fell over head first to you know, when the snow machines got out to him? I would say probably three and a half at a minimum um, because I made it back to the truck between 10 and 1030. And that's when I hit the button as well was when I, I first started making that jog back there. So between 10 and 1030, that button was hit and they got out there and actually they got him into the snowmobile um, sled at about 130 at night or 130 in the morning. So it was at least three and a half hours that he had been laying on the ground. Wow. And it worked, and at this time, it actually warmed up. It's negative eleven Fahrenheit now, so he um he had been out there in some very cold weather for a very long time. And if if he wasn't put with a hot water bottle and sleeping bag and having Andrew keep him warm out there that entire time, he probably would not have made it. Because the ambulance when they when he got back to the the trailhead and the ambulance picked him up and put him in there, and he was a he was alert now at this point. The snowmobile, um. I think the snowmobile vibrations, the sound, plus the fact that Andrew had been keeping him warm, I think he had come out of his um, unconscious state and he was alert and he was talking. And he kept on saying over and over, I don't want an ambulance ride. Just put me in my truck. But they're like, no, you've been out there for so long. We have to take you now. It's like, there's, you don't have an option for this. You're going. But they did a, a core temperature check on him in the back of the ambulance before they took him. And they told me that his core temp was 95.4. 95.4? 95.4. And 95 is considered clinically hypothermic. So if he was being warmed up by Andrew for at least three of those three and a half to four hours he was out there, how cold did he get before he warmed back up to 95.4? So it was definitely um, definitely a, a scary situation that when we left that morning, we did not think would ever turn out that way. And uh, we're very, very happy that uh, one, we had Andrew, and and two, there was no injuries out of this. Uh, he was definitely happy that we we pushed the button and we did what we what we did to get him back out of there. And you know, in hindsight, there are so many things that we could have done better. When we look back at the situation, you know, one obviously plan better, bring sources of heat, bring water, bring food. Um, probably skip the alcohol until we get back to an actual camp to be safe at, rather than being out in the trail still. Mm-hmm. Um, those things, you know, are immediate things. The other things too, is when we look at how we, how we quote unquote tried to rescue Travis, was 
was there other ways we probably could have drug him back? Um, you know, was there something else that we could have done uh, rather than relying upon the park service with a snowmobile to, to and a sled to pull him? Because it was very difficult. Like I did not expect to move somebody who was completely unconscious to be that difficult. But in the cold, in the snow, and when the snow was that deep and we had to be on snowshoes, it was just so difficult to try to move his body. Uh, I think that was probably the most difficult part was was trying to figure out uh, how to move him and not being able to is because the the snow was so deep and he was so um, not rigid because he, he couldn't use his own muscle mass to hold himself up because he was unconscious. So I I think we were all surprised as how difficult it was to try to move his body and playing with those types of scenarios and actually probably going out and practicing some of those scenarios in the snow this winter would be a good thing for us and our group to to really figure out if we do have something like this happen again, how we can try to move them without having to rely upon park service or somebody with a snowmobile and a sled to do it for us. The material in the back of um, Freedom of the Hills was very difficult to apply in those conditions, in that environment, when we're also very tired and um, cold ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely something that we would need to practice. And uh, I had the benefit of going to the North Cascades for a, a six-day mountaineering course at one point, uh, which was very good. We learned a lot of the, the three-to-one haul systems and crevasse rescue and stuff like that for glacier travel. But never once did we actually practice moving uh, an unconscious patient um, long distances. Yeah. So <laughs> like we, we practice getting people out of a hole, which is very likely and that can happen. But you know, this, this event here taught us that people can just become unresponsive too. And we need to practice those things also. D- did you have any other learnings? I, I think those were probably the biggest things was just um, being better prepared. Uh, probably, you know, that's as, as my, my own learning here is probably next time on a, a trip like this with the group is just to be more assertive and, look, and say, look, I am bringing sources of heat uh, so we can melt, wa- melt snow and make water and keep ourselves warm if we have to. Um, I really would have preferred to camp. I don't think we would have been nearly as exhausted if we would have camped up there. Well, and then you would have had everything that you would, would have needed to, um, to stay warm and to keep warm. Yes. Um, that would have been that too, but you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty on that. And well, we, we set off with packs that were pretty full already, thinking that we would just be able to get in and get back out. So I think I think I've watched a number of specials on Discovery Channel long ago, um, with people trying to climb Denali or Annapurna, and it's like, nah, we can make the summit. Let's just leave all stuff behind and now there's a TV show about them. So Thank you, Jason, for being on the show. And in addition to what Jason's learnings were, I thought there were quite a few more lessons that I would like to share um, that I got from his experience. Um, Number one, you cannot expect a rescue to arrive quickly. And he's right that you're not likely to be able to move someone in that situation. Number two, knowing your technical systems are important, but there is a little too much focus in this situation on three to ones and hauling someone, etc., uh, you, you also need to be prepared to rewarm someone in place, whether that's with a shelter, dry clothes, etc., and wait for help in the field. But before you go, we have one more guest on the show today. His name is Brian Jarrett. Brian is a wilderness medicine physician who's going to help us understand hypothermia, how to recognize it, and how to treat it in the wild. 
I think you'll recognize a lot of what he's saying in this story that you just heard. I learned a couple key points from talking to Brian. Number one, running out of water or or your water freezing. And what Brian does is bring a small stove on trips like this one, especially long trips where he's already carrying a lot of gear. A small stove, pot, and fuel don't really take up that much more space or weight, but they do add a lot of safety against dehydration and hypothermia. And there's even comforts too. You know, think about hot chocolate when you're in the field is so nice. Another huge thing is keeping water bottles upside down in your pack so that the openings don't freeze. When I asked Brian to clarify uh, the whole myth behind eating snow, he, he does agree that it's a bad idea. He told me that it cools you down significantly because you're basically putting ice in your core. It, it actually functionally dehydrates you because it takes more water to melt or heat the water than you get from drinking it. So don't eat snow. Number three, alcohol. Yes, alcohol. It causes peripheral vasodilation, and this can lead to further heat loss and feelings like you are warmer than you are. I'd like to give Brian Jarrett a warm welcome, no pun intended, to the show to give you some more information on hypothermia. Ashley, thanks so much for having me on the show. My name is Brian Jarrett. I'm an emergency medicine physician specializing in wilderness medicine. I'm the current wilderness medicine fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. I'm also a avid rock and ice climber uh, with most of my adventures being up here in the Northeast. So I wanted to talk a little bit about hypothermia, go over what it is, what it looks like, and what we can do about it. So essentially, the definition of hypothermia is that it's a drop in a person's core temperature uh, that usually causes some systems in the body to essentially not work right. Mostly, we're talking about the brain and the heart. Obviously, this exists on a continuum, as many things in wilderness medicine do, uh, all the way from the cold, shivering person to a non-responsive person who, even if you move them just a little, might develop an abnormal heart rhythm. So let's talk about the mild hypothermic patient. Let's say you have a climbing buddy who's really cold, shivering, has some difficulty with fine motor control, maybe they're fumbling with their gear or dropping carabiners. This is the person that you want to encourage to do some basic rewarming techniques. You want to make sure that they remove wet clothing, replace that with dry clothing. You want to make sure that they're maximally insulated so they have all their layers on. Really important is that you want this person to eat something or be well hydrated so that they can create heat. And If it's safe for them, like if they're able to, then you want them to be able to do some kind of exertion to try to use that energy to create heat. That could be running in place or swinging your arms around or doing jumping jacks. Uh, What happens if you have somebody that's more concerning? Let's say your climbing partner gets more cold, they were shivering, they got a little sweaty, they didn't really pay attention to it, and now all of a sudden they're not shivering anymore. They're still really cold and now they're just not acting themselves. So this is what we call altered mental status. And similar to other areas in wilderness medicine and other uh, wilderness illnesses, altered mental status is a really bad sign. So this is true regardless of whether a person has heat illness or dehydration or salt or sugar problems or altitude illness. 
when someone is confused, not acting themselves, doesn't know where they are, has trouble walking, uh, isn't talking right, those are really concerning things. So at this point, your climbing partner probably has more like moderate or severe hypothermia, and you need to be more aggressive about rewarming them. So what I want to talk about here is a hypothermia wrap. So this is a patient, obviously, that is not going to be able to self-extricate. So you really need to warm them up and try to activate search and rescue. So to make a hypothermia wrap, the first thing you want to do is you want to get that patient off the cold ground so that they stop losing more heat conductively to the ground. So what you can do is you can put a pack underneath them, or if you have a sleeping pad or a sleeping mat, you can put that underneath them while you're building the rest of the hypothermia mat. So this wrap is essentially a warming burrito. It has an outer layer, which is reflective of some kind, and then it has a bunch of insulating layers on the inside. So you want to lay out a reflective outer surface. Uh, you can use a baby sack if you have an emergency blanket or a rain fly for a tent. Or my personal favorite thing to bring into the mountains is a really heavy-duty trash bag. I just throw it in the bottom of my pack. It's got a bunch of uses, and this is one of them. So you lay that out, and then you want to insulate the person. You want to use sleeping bags or heavy jackets, or if you have puffy pants, you want to make sure they have a dry hat on them and socks on. And then you want to put them inside all of this insulation, put them inside of this reflective layer, and wrap the reflective layer around them like a burrito. Flip the feet up and then wrap the left side over them and then wrap the right side over them. Uh, if you have access to a stove or something to warm water, you can put warm water in water bottles and put them in their groin or under their armpits to try to actively rewarm this patient. Uh, this is basically going to conserve every bit of heat that they have and avoid further heat loss. It's one of the best ways to rewarm a patient in the field if it gets to that. But let's talk a little bit about preventing getting to that point. So the best ways to prevent hypothermia are to avoid heat loss in the first place. So stay dry and insulated. Try not to oversweat your layers or uh, make sure you have a, an, a good insulating layer on. And you also need to have enough energy to create heat. So this is staying well hydrated, staying well fed, making sure your body can create heat when it, when it can. And then you also want to avoid unnecessary losses. So this is things like drinking alcohol or uh, drinking caffeinated beverages that causes your blood vessels to uh, dilate and lose more heat than you would otherwise. So I hope this was helpful. Uh, hope everybody stays warm out there. Thanks to Jason and Brian for being on the show. And... My question to you is, what did you learn? I invite you to head to the Sharpen Instagram page, find the post featuring this story, and share your takeaways from this episode. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor, and thank you to the Colorado Howard Brown School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Howard Brown School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. 
Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. For over 80 years, Suntu has developed the tools to help mountain athletes safely navigate new territory and train for major expeditions. Suntu devices are chosen by leading alpinists worldwide for their durability, accuracy, and ease of use. Suntu watches are handcrafted in Finland, and the word Suntu comes from the Finnish word meaning direction. Learn more at Suunto.com. And remember, play hard and be smart.